This is the first time we've done a show together in person in two years. Absolutely. Yeah. Since October 2019 for a Halloween show called A Fax Machine Science Seance. I remember the day. <laughs> <laughs> so welcome. Welcome to a live episode of Fax Machine here at Caveat. It's great to have you all with us. Thank you. <laughs> My name is Rob Farley. I am the coast here. I am the, I'm <laughs> the, coast. the coast. Already thinking about the Halloween show, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> But I am the co-host of Fax Machine, here with my other co-hosts, Noah. Hello. And Em. Hi. And we have a very special guest today. Everyone, give a big welcome to Kyle Marion. Thank you. Thank you. Hi. Thanks for having me, friends. Yeah, thanks for being here. Kyle, you bring something really interesting to the show that we're going to discuss later today, a really fascinating delicacy. Um, I don't want to tease too much, but... Do you want to tell us anything to, to get the crowd excited? Oh, okay. Um, I guess, uh, I don't know. It's, it, it'll, it'll be something tasty. It'll be Ooh. fun. It might make white people in the room feel uncomfortable. It's perfect. <laughs> you know, yeah. And, and from this, <laughs> our theme tonight is food. And so tonight, we have gathered in caveat to sink our teeth into the theme of food. We've baked up some of our most exquisite facts, steeped them in hours in the trivia sauce in order to extract the essence of the best facts, spice them to perfection <laughs> so that we can serve you, the listener, a four-course, made-to-order, Michelin star trivia experience to amuse <laughs> your bushes and your brain. I don't like that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it works on paper, right? <laughs> okay. And so the four of us will be taking turns presenting our facts, discussing these culinary ideas, and then we'll wrap things up with a pub-style trivia quiz as we always do, loosely inspired by the theme. With no further ado, I want to hand it off to Noah, who has our first fact. Thank you. Yeah. Should be with Noah further ado. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> Starting early. So when I am stressed, particularly by something I can't do anything about, uh, I do two things. I eat nonstop and I get really productive, uh, but for irrelevant things. Uh, I do this all the time, but the classic example from my life is that I had a really sick family member, and over the weeks that the rest of my family had gathered to help out, I got overwhelmed, like a lot of people would, and instead of being present and you know useful, I, I started taking an online business class. <laughs> Which was extra weird, because I have no interest in business whatsoever. But that's the kind of thing that I'll do when things get too big or unfixable. So during the pandemic, this, this massive global problem in the face of which I felt utterly powerless, I did two things. I ate nonstop, and I took a class on the Welsh language. <laughs> which, which was extra weird, because I am not Welsh. Um, and I am, however, really interested in Welsh. I love the way the language sounds, and I love quirky trivia about it, like how the second longest single word place name town in the world is in Wales, as you can see right there. Um, but Rob and M are rightfully tired of me bragging to them. In my mind, it's bragging. Uh, <laughs> that, that I know how to pronounce this town and that I know what it means in English. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, no, 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 no. Trust I'm me. sorry. I can't. I it gets possibly. longer every time. <laughs> uh, I couldn't possibly impose. Uh, no, no, no. I'm sorry. Come on, everyone. No, I can't say it. Just get on. it over with. But <laughs> um, they've definitely had enough for the time being, so I'm just going to move on to my other pandemic hobby and the topic of this show, and that is food. So the aspect of food I'd like to talk about is the powerful capacity of food to evoke memory. And when I say memory, I don't necessarily mean something as simple as recalling what a particular dish is called or merely remembering that you like it. I'm talking about the capacity of food to instantly, often without warning, transport you to another time and place, another state of mind altogether. Food is 
powerfully evocative of an experience known as involuntary memory. This is a term coined by author Marcel Proust in his novel, Remembrance of Things Past, and extensively explored in this book, but most notably during a scene right near the beginning in which the narrator dips a Madeleine cookie into tea, uh, and upon tasting it feels this odd sensation described as follows. I raised to my lips a spoonful of tea in which I had soaked a morsel of the cake. A shudder ran through my whole body and I stopped. An exquisite pleasure had invaded my senses. This new sensation having had on me the effect which love has. Whence could it have come to me this all-powerful joy? So feeling curious, he tastes it again and is utterly engulfed in a childhood memory of his beloved aunt who had passed away. He says, the taste was that of the little crumb of Madeline, which on Sunday mornings my Aunt Leanna used to give to me, dipping it first in her own cup of lime flower tea. And as once I had recognized the taste, immediately her old gray house rose up like the scenery of a theater. And with the house, the town, all the flowers in our garden, and the good folk of the village taking their proper shapes, sprang into being from my cup of tea. And similarly, the whole novel springs forward from this moment, from this peculiar feature of our nervous system that permits immediate, unasked for, mental time travel. It's actually referred to in the scientific literature as mental time travel. You know that that was coined by someone who got into science because they love Star Trek or something, and now instead of a space explorer, they're a psychologist or something, and they, they're Settling. trying... Yeah. <laughs> if you can't do space exploration, try... What is it? Teach psychology? <laughs> Forget that. Um, and they're basically just trying to punch up all their neurological phenomena. But speaking of time travel, you might be thinking, I've never heard of this book, uh, but the part of that story that is very familiar, is it possible that from the past, Marcel Proust ripped off uh, the most revered film in the history of French cinema? And of course the answer is yes, and that film is Ratatouille. <laughs> and in which the hard-hearted food critic Anton Ego tastes Remy's Ratatouille and brings him back to his childhood, and then all all of a sudden he gives a good review, and then it's okay that rats make food in Paris. Um, so issues of time-traveling plagiarism aside, what does it mean for a memory to be involuntary? Involuntary memory occurs when something in the course of ordinary life uh, causes spontaneous recollection of the past without conscious effort. Voluntary memory, on the other hand, requires deliberate effort to recall past events. The way I think about it is Basically, like, you're taking, you're in school, right? Uh, and you're at your desk taking a big test, and uh, maybe it's geography class or something. And you open the test, and the first question is something like, well, I don't know, uh, what is the capital of Wales? Um, <laughs> and as try as you might, you just can't seem to remember. And then later, to console yourself for having been one correct answer away from passing the class, you have a piece of cake to console yourself, and you're suddenly transported back to a time when you were at your friend's birthday party and he just would not shut up about whales. And as if you were back there, in that moment you hear him say, by the way, the capital of Wales is Cardiff. And you feel like you should really listen to him more. <laughs> but why, why is it that food has such a strong connection to memory and to involuntary memory specifically? It's unclear precisely why, but we know, for example, that olfactory signals, that is, information about smell, which you may know makes up a lot of what we think of as flavor, right, is connected directly to a part of the brain called the amygdala, which is important for emotional experience and the emotional content of memory, whereas other senses appear to have sort of a less direct route. And given this involvement of the amygdala, as well as the episode of involuntary memory described in Proust um, slash Ratatouille, um, <laughs> it should come as no surprise that smell cues memories with emotional content more powerfully than some other senses do, perhaps because emotional content is such an integral feature of this type of memory. It makes it easier to like access with something like food. In fact, by whatever type of sensory input they're exposed to or that they're asked to like try to evoke memories with, what you're struck by as you read through the accounts of study participants is that involuntary memories are often deeply emotional and usually like profoundly positive experiences. So one of the many accounts actually comes from a patient described by Oliver Sacks, uh, where he details the experience of a patient whose um, involuntary memory returned to, to quote, her long forgotten home in the arms and presence of her mother, prompting a quote, trembling, profound, and poignant joy, like the opening of a door which had been stubbornly closed all her life. 
However, there is a rare counterexample in the literature that I'd like to mention, and that is the case of a 73-year-old man who the study authors, not me, just to be clear, the study authors felt the need to mention is from Northern Wales, <laughs> uh, and who was given a kind of word association test. It's one of the ways they can test this. Not all these sort of memories are associated with food in the lab. Um, and he was given this test to promote involuntary memory and just report what happened. And he did not have a good time. Um, in, in response to the word storm, he reported a memory from 55 years prior in which he vividly experienced seeing a large storm uh, on the horizon, watching the angry clouds moving toward him and feeling, quote, concerned, wet, and annoyed. <laughs> so summer in New York, essentially. Okay, yeah. But so to me, right, where involuntary memory gets most interesting is in diseases such as Alzheimer's, in which, uh, although it is characterized by memory impairment, involuntary memory is relatively spared, which I think is incredible. There's something about, there's something different about the neuroscience of involuntary memory that enables it to overcome the kind of challenges that are presented by this sort of disease. Take the word of Colin, a dementia patient in one of these studies who says, I think if you get a little stimulus, you can then remember quite clearly an incident and what connects with it branch by branch. I saw a picture of a man digging a hole and a piece of ice somewhere, and instantly what that did was make me think of the time I was in Kazakhstan somewhere in winter. What a life Colin has lived. And, <laughs> and why was he digging that hole? I hope it was for fishing and not for hiding a body. I have so many questions about Colin. <laughs> you know, look, this, this quality that food has to evoke these kind of memories, these vivid memories of our past, in many cases, extremely welcome memories of times we'd lament not being able to, not just revisit, but like re-experience, uh, as if for the first time, cherished moments with people we love dearly, but also just when we're feeling stressed, like everything's out of our control, right? Feelings and memories that food inspires within us can help root us in, a, in an awareness of who we are and where we come from that can be really, really comforting. And in thinking about these stories of people who like consider involuntary memory uh, an incredibly cathartic experience, I just, I can't stop thinking about someone who must be very stressed all the time. And it's that man from Northern Wales. Um, <laughs> from the study I mentioned earlier, who I just imagine is just haunted by this persistent vision of a storm, of a, an old Welsh, a decades old Welsh thunderstorm rolling toward him over the hills or the water, I haven't been to Wales, the, <laughs> that, um, that leaves him feeling, quote, concerned, wet, and annoyed. And I, I can't help but think he deserved better. And I wish that I could find that man and sit down with him and maybe share a Madeleine cookie and some tea. And after a few minutes of silence, he might just smile and tell me about this most extraordinary memory he had just had about his time as a young child growing up near, say, St. Mary's Church in the hollow of the White Hazel near to the rapid whirlpool of St. Cecilia of the Red Cave or in his native Welsh. Thank you very much. And Diolchenbauer. Very impressive. Dang. Let's jump right into my fact, which I hope you all dig, but it might be an acquired taste. Oh. <laughs> Buckle in. So, has anyone here seen this before? First of all, right? Probably like an elementary school. So this is called the tongue map. And if I were to put an X on this tongue map, it would cover the whole thing. <laughs> like that. Not because it's treasure, but because it's trash. <laughs> Gobbledygook. Just to set the record straight. This is how taste actually works. So you have your tongue. Oh. Or look, it's Sir, please sit down. <laughs> had your moments. <laughs> so we have your tongue, or Albert's, uh, and studying the surface of your tongue are these little fleshy bumps called papillae. Um, and you can actually see them if you look inside your mouth or inside your neighbors, which you can do now. Vaccines rule. <laughs> <laughs> but these papillae have clusters of cells embedded in them called taste buds. So taste buds, in a nutshell, are chemical detectors. And with these little cell protrusions that basically peep into your mouth and sense the chemicals in, or taste, whatever you eat. So the cells in a taste bud are called taste receptor cells, or TRCs. And each one has a special protein receptor uh, expressed on it. Uh, and they detect one of five tastes. So these, the map actually did get right. Uh, sweet, bitter, sour, salty, or umami. So every taste bud has some sweet TRCs, some bitter TRCs, 
some sour TRCs, et cetera. And it's these TRCs with their matching taste receptors that sense the tastes in your mouth and relay them to your brain. So your brain can figure out what you're eating and whether or not that's a good idea. <laughs> so imagine for a moment that Stanley Tucci, uh, oh, the Tucci. Oh, right, the Tucci. has invited you over for some pasta alla Martina. And say your first bite activates your sweet umami and salty TRCs, which sends signals along cranial nerves up to your brain. And then your brain synthesizes that information, along with lots of other sensory input, in the gustatory complex, as shown, uh, to figure <laughs> out what you're eating and whether to reward you for eating it, because it's nutritious and calorific and could be good for you, uh, or to repulse you from eating it, because it could be harmful, like if it's poisonous or rotting. So. In this case, your brain aptly concludes that you're eating delicious pasta, <laughs> so you mange away. But say Stanley Tucci had more nefarious motivations behind <laughs> <laughs> his dinner invitation. Why does he <laughs> still look so hot? What is that? <laughs> right? Ooh, I like a bad Tucci. Uh, your bitter TRCs, in this case, would hopefully detect the poison hemlock poison. spiked into your meal and signal to your brain, at which point your brain would be like, ugh, poison, spit it out, and hopefully prompt you to barf. Though, I mean, if not, there are worse ways to go, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, I mentioned briefly that your brain uses a lot of information, apart from the signals sent by taste buds, to understand what you're eating, uh, <laughs> including how food looks and sounds and its temperature and texture. But to get a sense... Uh. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> of this phenomenon firsthand, I now invite you all to perform a little experiment on yourselves. That's right. We're doing human experimentation at Caveat, should you wish to tweet that out without context. Okay. So as clearly you've all noticed, uh, you have jelly beans on your table. Pop those open, and we're going to go... Well, hey, catch it! Can, oh, there we go. Oh, sorry. <laughs> My generous co-hosts have your back. This, um, this sound, by the way, listeners have said is their favorite sound <laughs> to <laughs> listen to. We, we genuinely had a review on the Just, like iTunes store that was like, "Please stop opening packages yeah. on it." <laughs> <Please stop. laughs> it is on our website as a testimonial. Okay. Um, so now that you all have your beans, let's go through the steps. So step one: just eat a jelly bean. Pick one, eat it. Enjoy it, experience it. Step two, pinch your nose closed. Step three, ch start chewing another jelly bean, still with your nose closed. And I then can't eat step that four, while still chewing, wow. unpinch your nose. I'm looking for reactions. Kind of, yeah, I <laughs> like it. So, yeah, you're all then noticing a certain sensation. Um, so basically, you might have noticed that when your nose was pinched, <laughs> at most you could taste something sugary <laughs> and chewy in your mouth. Uh, but once you released your nose, you could actually discern the full flavor of the jelly bean. And this is because smell is another one of those major sources of information that your brain relies on to understand your food. So actually, while you're chewing, little particles of food float back into your nose through the oropharynx, which is that cavity that links your nose and your mouth. Um, and there, there are olfactory or smell receptors that smell your food. Science. Ooh. Ooh. All right. So now we get to the meat or meat substitute <laughs> of my fact. Um, so we know they're taste receptors. <laughs> Really? It's so <laughs> funny. Really? It's yeah. like a goofy Slender Man. Like. <laughs> <laughs> Slender Man, but he's cute. Okay. <laughs> so uh, we know there are taste receptors in your mouth, right? We just experience them. Uh, sweet, bitter, salty, sour, umami. Check. But what if I told you that we've found these same taste receptors in all these places, too? Heck yeah. Yum, yum, yum. Yes. <laughs> Uh, so we're talking That's your terrifying. brain, your lungs, your ears, your skin, your blood vessels, your intestines, your, your kidneys, your testes. Why not? Of course. Um, and probably more, right? These are just places where we found taste receptors outside of your mouth so far. And scientists are increasingly learning that these little chemical connoisseurs are scattered all over our bodies, lurking in the most unexpected organs and tissues. But following closely after each of these discoveries is the same big question, and one that we have an answer for in some instances, but not yet in others. What the yuck are these receptors doing? <laughs> what are they doing? <laughs> Why are they here? But 
Here's what we know, at least in a few examples. Okay, so you all know me. Ooh. I never miss an opportunity to make a ruckus over mucus. <laughs> so these pictures show cells from, of course, the lungs. Yes. Uh, specifically, the lungs of mice recovering from an influenza infection. Uh, so the bright yellow cells that you Someone see. Someone just whooped for influenza? <laughs> <laughs> Whose side are you on? <laughs> So the little yellow cells are uh, called tough cells. And yeah, over the years, we've found tough cells along the inner linings of a few different organs. But until recently, we didn't really know much about them. Apart from that, they have taste receptors. Um, and the researchers in, this, in the study that these pictures came from uh, basically figured out that tough cells, at least in lungs, pop up after a flu infection to help coordinate a local immune response. And we've also observed bitter taste receptors in our upper airways um, that detect bitter chemicals secreted by bacteria, stimulating our lungs to both sweep the bacteria out, like literally upward and out of our lungs, using little hairy structures called cilia, and to release antimicrobial molecules, all to fight off the infection. And we're finding more and more examples like this, where taste receptors are detecting chemicals from pathogens and alerting our innate immune system, not our brain, our innate immune system, that something's amiss. So kind of cool. We're tasting germs. <laughs> um, and we've caught so-called extraoral taste receptors interacting with other bodily systems, too. So in your pancreas, for example, <laughs> they got it. Ooh, okay. Well, well, is right. <laughs> Kind of mad lines was that everywhere. for extra oral? Yeah, that oh. was. That was right. Yeah, I was with you. Yeah, okay. nice, nice. Oh, I love it. Um, so, in your pancreas, for example, uh, sweet taste receptors sense glucose levels in your blood. Makes sense. Uh, which feed into regulation of metabolic hormones um, and even testes. Yes, I gotta explain the testes. <laughs> <laughs> Low blow, but okay. Uh, <laughs> When the scientific name becomes the innuendo. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> All of our jokes here are in poor taste, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> and while we don't really understand what the umami receptors are doing, that's not deterred some intrepid TikTokers from dipping their balls in soy sauce for science. Yes, this is an actual trend that happened on TikTok if the few websites that I read reporting on it are to be believed. Um, but it was in January 2020, so, you know, sweet summer children. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Cute. Um, That's the best case scenario these last year. <laughs> <laughs> True. <laughs> True. It's like, you know what? Might as well. Why not? Um, so in researching for this fact, I read a few interviews with the scientists who happened upon taste receptors in unexpected places. And some expressed feeling shock and even disbelief at what they were peering at through their microscopes on the day that they found them. So it's not just us, you know, right, who are seeing all these receptors all over bodies being like, what the yuck? Like, even the <laughs> experts were surprised. Um, and I think that's kind of telling, actually, because you know, to an extent that's difficult to fully wrap our minds around. You know, our bodies are constantly sensing and analyzing and learning and adapting to what's happening inside of us and outside of us, uh, all to maintain our homeostasis and keep us alive. And we don't even realize it's happening. Um, and our bodies use so many complex, elegant, and unpredictable strategies to accomplish this that even after centuries spent studying our own biology, we're still making discoveries that elude our comprehension and, I dare say, blow our minds. That's a lung made of tongues, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's beautiful. I love it so much. Um, so I'll wrap this up uh, by saying that our bodies are amazing. Yes, I know. I'm a lung biologist being like, ugh! Science. Um, <laughs> and clearly, you know, they have a boundless capacity to surprise us. Uh, and while I hope that you all enjoyed my meandering tale, uh, I'll concede, especially after learning about all this, that sometimes, yeah, there's no accounting for taste. Hey. Hey. So we are excited to invite to the speaker's position our special guest, Kyle Marion. Thank you, thank you, thank you. 
everybody else is taller than me, so I have to then restrike all the things to be way short. Uh, <laughs> for the listeners of the pod, I am tiny. Okay, great. Um, wow, thanks so much for having me. This is so exciting. We have a pretty full house. Um, I guess it's it's my turn to come up with some facts, and I must admit. Uh, <laughs> yes. Not all condiments are created equal. Um, so I, I don't know, like, what's some of your favorite sauces? Uh, yell Barbecue. it up. Barbecue, mayo, mayo. mayo. hell yeah. Szechuan, fuck yeah. Spicy mayo, yeah. We've got some uh, great ones. Um, I'm sorry, you have money? Trader Joe's barbecue sriracha? Okay, all right. Thank you, Waldorf salad. <laughs> uh, so my fact, and I wanted to focus on this one, is a condiment that's near and dear to my heart, and it is the ketchup. Yes. Um, how many ketchups are there? Any guesses? Too many ketchups. Two. Excuse you? Too many ketchups? I'm sorry. Who hurt you? Um, <laughs> Any guesses? 16. 16. Yeah, the, uh, the, you know, like the, the famous one is like, you got it. Something like that. Heinz says that they have 99 on the bottle. It's like 57 varieties. Um, but we don't actually know how many there are because you could just like make up your own. But one of the first facts that I wanted to bring to you is how many Heinz recipes there are um, because it's not 57. And I don't know if um, anyone has heard this fun fact before, but where that 57 number came from is kind of interesting. So Snopes wrote about this. David Mickelson wrote about where the 57 Heinz number came from. Um, and he said, one day, Mr. Heinz spied an advertising placard <laughs> in the train car promoting 21 styles of shoes. Uh, he was struck by the concept and recognizing that catchiness and resonance uh, were far more important qualities for a company slogan than literal accuracy. <laughs> Capitalists, you know them. Uh, Heinz cool. cast about for the perfect number to use for his own version of the phrase. So that's kind of where it comes from. And Mr. Heinz, the romantic, uh, picked five, his lucky number, and paired it with seven, his wife's lucky number. So I know, um, I love this because it's just so, so romantic. And like, I can imagine being Mrs. Heinz and saying, <laughs> Oh my God, babes. <laughs> <laughs> my favorite number is $1 million. <laughs> and my favorite letters are CEO. So <laughs> let's manifest together, you know what I mean? <laughs> um, but I kind of wanted to just like show a slide of like some of the different more well-known ketchups out there. Um, I don't know if folks have tried mushroom ketchup before. So mushroom ketchup in the UK, this is where it originated. Um, it's a ketchup uh, that, is use it, that uses mushrooms as the base. And it looks exactly like baby poop, <laughs> which is what you see there in that tub. Um, comes in a fancy bottle, but squirts out different. Uh, <laughs> 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 and then there's also uh, fruit ketchup, because you can make ketchup out of a lot of different things. But I don't know if anyone's ever tried Curryburst. Whoa. Yes! Whoa. It's, that's one of my favorite um, ketchup flavors. So what's interesting about Curryburst, and it's kind of like similar to the next story that I'm going to tell you, is that it was invented in 1949. And the story goes that a German housewife, Herta Heuer, I think I said it right? Um, uh, so the story goes that she traded some spirits with British soldiers uh, stationed in Berlin. Um, and in the exchange for booze, they gave her ketchup and curry powder, um, which is also culturally a product of Brits colonizing India. You'll get my drift a little bit later. Anyway, um, the trade created the dish. Uh, and so it was composed of German sausage, sliced and doused in ketchup and sprinkled with curry powder, and it's now incredibly popular in Germany. I highly recommend it if you haven't tried it before. 
But the one that I really want to spotlight today is the Philippines national condiment, banana ketchup. <laughs> oh my god, we got some fans in the house. That's so great. Okay. Um, so banana ketchup is very exciting, similar to currywurst. It has kind of roots in wartime um, in terms of when it was invented and why it became what it was. Uh, so during World War II, there was a shortage of tomatoes. Uh, and during war, resources were being rationed. So in comes my favorite woman in science that you probably never heard of, unless you're Filipino, uh, and uh, is uh, Maria Ilaga. Orosa. Um, but before I get to that, um, I just want to talk about how important banana ketchup is to the nation and my peoples. <laughs> we grow up with this stuff. It is in every household and it, with every single Filipino from around the world. You kind of have to live it um, to understand it. Uh, it has a sweeter flavor than typical tomato ketchup. Um, and uh, I have I associate it with memories of birthday parties because it's in everything. So I'll just go back. It is in Filipino spaghetti, which is I guess if I had to describe it to non-Filipinos, like it's that scene in Elf where he douses his spaghetti <laughs> with candy. Um, it is that good. Okay. Um, and then we pair it with all of the foods, um, including hot dogs with marshmallows and barbecue and all of that stuff. Um, so highly recommend it if you haven't tried it before. Uh, and the other thing that evokes my memories when I'm eating this stuff is um, birthday parties <laughs> and Jollibee dancing his ass off, <laughs> making that money. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh, oh. Hell yeah, Filipinos. Oh, wow. Hey. Yes. That's right. And that is how we make monies in the Philippines. Um. Does that look like it's right by my head? <laughs> it does. I think from the screen it does. Yeah. Um, but I want to like really focus on the person who made and invented this. Her name is Maria Ilagan Orosa. Um, she is a multitasker extraordinaire, um, Philippine war hero, pharmaceutical and food chemist, inventor of many things, but especially of the national condiment, banana ketchup. And yes, the, the banana ketchup is made from mashed banana, sugar, vinegar, and spices. Um, but when it's made, it doesn't look like uh, ketchup typically and so at the time because you know during war times in the Philippines uh, there were a lot of American soldiers there and we had to evade them because oh my god uh, Americans you know uh, um, it had to be colored a little bit with coloring and so that's what you get now is this redder sort of ketchup that mimics the look and the texture of tomato ketchup but is a bit sweeter and perfectly pairs with Filipino food um, yes, Wu is correct. <laughs> um, but how it was invented. So just a hot American history lesson. Uh, so the Philippines was colonized by Spain for 300 years. And when the Spanish-American War ended, Spain ceded the Philippine colony to Americans in 1898. Um, and despite Philippine heroes fighting uh, I wanted to fight against like American occupation, we kind of lost, and so then we ended up being an American colony, but I don't know if you learned that in your school, so like now you kind of have to know. <laughs> Great. Um, and separately, during that time, um, we actually, because of the tomato shortage, uh, they found out, and Maria found out, that like 75% of tomato imports came from the US or Spain which doesn't really make sense for a tropical paradise with such high rates of biodiversity to be like, oh, we're gonna buy American shit. So she decided to replace the tomato with plenty of Philippine banana varieties. And that's how we got the ketchup today, banana ketchup. Um, one of the things that I, s I wanna like really highlight is to me, Banana ketchup is very symbolic of Maria Ilaganorosa's mission of decolonizing and empowering the Philippines through food uh, innovation and education. 
So she food science the tomato out of the popular ketchup, used food chemistry, um, and Maria then works towards her dream of a self-sustaining Philippines free from the tethers of our exes, uh, the Spaniards, the Brits, the Americans, and our Japanese colonizers. So, you know, I, I feel that mission to win over your exes so hard. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's why she's my favorite scientist. <laughs> um, and uh, by the way, her journey to becoming an epic food scientist was wild. I mean, it's practically a blockbuster history or Hollywood story. Um, again, because the Philippines was, uh, was colonized by the US around that time in the 1920s. Um, at the age of 23, she was able to travel to the US pretty easily. And she got her bachelor's and master's from the University of Washington in Seattle. Woo! <laughs> making her way allegedly um, to the Pacific Northwest as a stowaway, but then earning a government-sponsored education. So, you know, immigrants, we get the things done. So. <laughs> um, but after her studies, uh, she became Washington State's first Filipina assistant state chemist. And a few years later, she decides to then return to the Philippines because she wanted to study native Filipino foods, spread the knowledge by educating women and families about nutrition and food tech in rural areas. Um, there is an organization similar to YMCA across the world called 4-H Clubs. And she actually like worked with those clubs to be able to teach rural parts of the Philippines how to raise chickens, preserve local produce, and plan healthy meals. So she's a total badass. Uh, yeah. <laughs> now some of the things that you might not know too, um, because yeah, clearly, you know, uh, bringing back food science to the Philippines wasn't enough. Um, she developed a lot of modern day food preservation techniques and not just for the Philippines, but she invented new ways of canning, dehydrating and fermenting food. Um, she made flour. She was the first person to like sort of really make flour from cassava, green bananas and coconuts. Um, and she was the first person to freeze mangoes so it could be exported worldwide. You're welcome, people. You're welcome. Yeah. Thank you so Co much. Co-inventor, frozen mango margarita. I mean, maybe. <laughs> your frozen margarita wouldn't be possible without her <laughs> science, so it's true. Um, and yeah, she was a prolific food scientist. She invented like 700 recipes that would merge indigenous ingredients and food science to address malnutrition. And how many scientists in the room are now feeling very inadequate? I know. Oh yeah, but like all the time, so <laughs> whatever. <laughs> totally. Um, and like some of her uh, inventions are like really, really important because um, she invented things like Soyalac, a nutrient-rich soybean drink that was like dehydrated, so it was powdered drink. And it saved the lives of so many Filipino and foreign prisoners of war during World War II. Not to be confused with Soylent Drinks, the sci-fi inspired Silicon Valley meal replacement drink, specifically designed by Silicon Valley's best and brightest so that they'd never have to stop for meals. Yeah. Because clearly the biggest problem Silicon Valley needed to solve wasn't world hunger. No, no, it was chewing. <laughs> so Soylent's slogan should have been, you're poor because you actually use your teeth. What? <laughs> they, they stopped at the bite that was taken out of the Mac logo. Yeah, that was it. That was it. All done. Okay. <laughs> um, so Maria also invented a new cooking vessel that you could see over there to the right. It's a, a clay pot called palayok, and it allows folks with no access to electricity or mar modern technology to bake breads, biscuits, and other foods only using coal or fire. So this was a big deal, especially during wartime Philippines when um, locals were having to hide in caves and like in, in, in ditches and all of that stuff to protect themselves from the Japanese. Um, so really kind of dope. Again, hope you're feeling very inadequate right now, <laughs> America. Okay. 
<laughs> and uh, one of the other things too that was like okay, fascinating because like I think all of us have experienced like you know doing all of these kinds of little jobs and things like that. Um, she actually learned from her side jobs of cooking, cleaning, and working at canning factories. And when she went back to the Philippines, taught guerrilla warriors how to can their own foods. So again, Americans, how are you feeling right now? <laughs> One of the things that I kind of wanted to highlight as I was doing research on her was that she she created so many things specifically to save the lives of um, malnutrition prisoners of war during World War II. Um, again, don't know why she's not an American hero. Hello. Uh, but one of the interesting things is that she created a cookie um, called darak that is actually infused with a lot of vitamins like... Um, like B1, um, like thiamine. And uh, so that they would work together because she also happened to be not just a food scientist, but also a captain in Marking's Guerrilla Warriors. Uh, <laughs> kind of a big deal. Um, she helped them sort of stuff bamboos in order to uh, smuggle food to prisoners at that time. So like, really dope. One of the last <laughs> things that I want to sort of talk about is her death and her legacy. So there's not actually a lot of information about her. Um, we have letters from her family and that sort of thing. But how she died was that she decided to not go home to the provinces where the war wasn't as bad. She wanted to stay in Manila because she actually believed that as a soldier, it was her job to stay in the fight. And like, it's just like so, so inspiring. Um, and unfortunately, how she died was from American Friendly Fire. I know, um, and I want to leave you with that because if anyone ever badmouths ke banana ketchup, <laughs> <laughs> please feel free to slap them in the face because <laughs> they don't know. And uh, okay, I'm not condoning violence on Fax Machine Pod, but I'm just saying <laughs> decolonizing our food and our knowledge can be really messy. So slap a bitch, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So, we have now come to the part of Fax Machine that you've all decided is your favorite. <laughs> <laughs> when we take two pub trivia hosts and our special guest, and we grill them on stage. Ladies and gentlemen, it is the quiz. Yeah. So, um, what are you guys in for? Audience, how was trivia? Let's hear. Okay. Does that mean hard or good? Yeah. <laughs> Okay, thank you for nice. clarifying. Okay. <laughs> that was helpful. Very good. Yeah. <laughs> Jury's out. Jury's okay. out. So all that remains is our food quiz. Everyone has already seen these questions and submitted their answers, and we'll go over them in real time. I will read the questions. Kyle, Noah, M, you tell me what you think the answer is. Oh, we have uh, to I have broken out my Olympic caliber swim coach's stopwatch. You will have a mere 30 seconds to wow. answer this. Yes. I so. just say, I want to preface that I might get violent. I don't know. I, I went really hard on the violence at the end of my talk. <laughs> yeah, and there was that is my headspace right now. That's okay. okay. Uh, Channel it. That's okay, the cool. best trivia teams are violent. Okay, right. <laughs> <laughs> really hard when you own the bar, but when you're just contracted to work there, it's kind of fine. So, <laughs> so, so our trivia quiz begins with one simple question. And actually, I should say, all of these questions have to do not with just foods, but their names. I really mm. love the romantic stories behind names. So please tell me um, all about these named foods. And your first question, what dumpling with a naughty shape, not a naughty shape, <laughs> but, but a knotted shape, um, has a name derived from the Lombard word for knuckles of wood, like you'd see in tree roots? And so we're looking for a, 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 yeah, so you can answer it together. You can Lombard's talk about it. Italian dialect. Yeah, yeah, so, I mean, if it's knotted. Gnocchi? Yeah. Oh. I there dig. I gnocchi. I co-sign gnocchi. I yeah. always, all right. I always, <laughs> always co-sign gnocchi. Yeah. Gnocchi? Gnocchi. gnocchi. <laughs> Not bad. That's good. Hey. 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 That's gnocchi. All right. 
Yes. Right. So the word gnocchi is actually thought to derive from noka, which means which means knuckles. You prepared for that? Huh? <laughs> yeah. Oh, it is gnocchi. Yes. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was like one of the many other pastas you had like. I have to, okay. First, not a pasta because it's potato. Okay. Slam. What? Okay. okay. Or ricotta, but okay. I also have on these four pages. I have every food name ever. So whatever you said, I was ready. Wait, but if it's not a pasta, what is it? I know it's a dumpling. It's technically oh. a dumpling. Which it's delicious. I don't want to open that. Is it a sandwich conversation with this crowd? But <laughs> we, yeah. <laughs> but so I always think of the world gnarled for tree roots, which actually come from the English gnarl, which oh. shares a common like Proto-Indo-European root mm. with gnoc. All right, question number two. Purportedly named after a Nebraska poker player, what New York sandwich was catapulted to fame by winning the 1956 National Restaurant Association's Sandwich Idea Contest? A sandwich idea? Uh, yeah, Monte Carlo? So New York sandwich, Ooh. but it became famous in 1956. Is that, a, is that a New York sandwich? I don't know if it's New York, but it's a sandwich that sounds like a person's name. Oh, you know Monty? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, Monty Carlo. Monty Carlo, Carlo. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's cool. He's from, he's from oh. uh, the West all the time, but he's fine. Uh, Wait, Ruben? We got Ruben. I like that, actually. Ooh, that's that's more, like an actual yeah. name. That's a name, yeah. That's a dude. We're New York. That's, like a, that's yeah. a guy. Yeah. I know a Ruben. <laughs> Sorry, Monty. Do you want yeah, to hit it? I like that. Okay, okay we'll go with yeah. We're going to go with a Ruben. Thank you. That's a Tubin Ruben. So, God, Kyle. so there's a guy Same named Ruben. He played poker. They named a sandwich. The real story here is that there's a national sandwich idea contest <laughs> that existed for years, and they had thousands of submissions. And if you Google it, it's not so much a thing anymore, but it, you, if you Google it, the first thing you find is 1979's New York Times article, and that was the year the Stromboli sandwich was introduced. Right? A stromboli sandwich? is a sandwich? Yeah. It's a sandwich? The stromboli is a sandwich, okay. yeah. Okay. But the top four that year was the no, stromboli, the garden. Why isn't a stromboli a dumpling? Uh, so a stromboli. <laughs> this is a good question. We oh, shouldn't no. dismiss is, it. Is it? <laughs> Tell us why. A stromboli is basically a dumpling or a calzone or a ravioli. And I don't have time to separate those groups. <laughs> okay. But oh, boy. the stromboli okay. sandwich separates the elements between slices of bread. Um, but also that year, the teriyaki surprise, which What's, doesn't that a surprise? sound good, yeah. No, okay. Uh, and the turkey shoot. <laughs> <laughs> so those were, those were runners up that year. Which part of the turkey does that use? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It just makes you go, shoot. <laughs> <laughs> All right, question number three. Uh, this food, designed by a scientist, Sir Benjamin Thompson, uh, it originally was called the Omelette Norwege in Paris, but it received its current name after an 1867 land purchase by the United States. What? Western omelette? So, um, so Norwegian, I think, like, salmon, right? But land purchase, what, what, what year? 1867 land purchase. Was that the Louisiana? What is it? Stylish. Like a colonizer? Yeah. Omelette? Surprise. You know it's got it's a colonizer shoot. Yeah. <laughs> So if you think about omelet and what that means, and you think about Norway and what that reminds you of. Cold. Okay, that's a good, <laughs> okay. that's a good direction. Oh, we're getting there. Okay. And then okay. a scientist who puts these things together, omelets and coldness. A cold scientist. <laughs> <laughs> and then I, any uh, final uh, guess right now, what do you think? Cold <laughs> eggs? Cold <laughs> <laughs> That's just when you're late for if breakfast. If we marry That's the two, yes. Yeah. I, I don't okay. think we know. All right. Uh, Sorry, don't know. Anyone from the audience? That is a baked oh! Alaska. So you Wait, got the meringue, the meringue egg on top. Yeah. You've got the cold ice cream in between. Oh. And it took a scientist to figure out how to make this marvel. Wow. So thank you, okay. Sir Benjamin Thompson. Wow. All right. Okay. I was made in Delmonico's in New York. So it's a New York, New York delicacy. Huh. All, All right. right. The audience Those is excited about that one. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Question four. Let's get this back. Yep. Come on. Okay, here we go. Okay. Question four. got to reel it in. This is a cake question for cake fans. What <laughs> cake, first made in Texas, is named after an old U.S. chocolate maker and not a European country like it sounds? Oh. oh. Like German chocolate? German chocolate cake? Oh, uh, or like a Bavarian? I mean... They're called. They're the really? same. I think they're the same. Boo. <laughs> as you as you wish it. <laughs> uh, go for it. 
uh, oh, or Black Forest cake. Oh, oh Black because Forest. of the Black Forest. Forest. In Germany. In, in Germany, I'm yeah. trying to find Christian. All right, okay. go, <laughs> so go, right. go for it. All right, Black Forest Black cake. So we did that thing that we do on Fax Machine. Oh. No. <laughs> it's a German chocolate cake. There are too many cakes. <laughs> I know. It was fun to watch, okay. though, and not be part of it. That was, <laughs> that was great. So, so German okay. chocolate is named after no German or German tradition. It's named after Sam German, um, ah, mm. who, who made chocolate for Baker's Chocolate Company Good in job, 1852. Mm. Um, and then literally 100 years later, someone took German chocolate and made a cake out of it, and they published it in a Dallas newspaper, and it was called German's Chocolate Cake, oh. which we now know as German Chocolate Cake. Right. There actually are a lot of Germans in Central Texas. There are towns like New Braunfels and Schlitterbahn. All right. So for you, we are halfway through. Only eight questions okay. for our okay. for our onstage okay. participants. Okay. Question number five. Uh, Dutch settlers brought oily cokes to the Americas. What food descends from this oily coke tradition, but whose shape was finalized by an American Hanson Gregory? So think. I didn't understand a single word of that. Yeah. <laughs> Anyone else? We're gonna need a repeat. Okay, so you've got oily cokes. Oily cokes. Yeah, that's true. So it's O L Y K O E K, an oily coke. Okay. And it's a Dutch word, which, as we know how Dutch works, it's when you put English into a meat grinder and then <laughs> right. take it the So apologies I don't, to the Dutch. Right, Dutch it's processed, <laughs> of course. Is that it? No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and the reality is it's the other way around, and that's how we got American English, but that's okay. Um, but you take that oily Coke, and then you change the shape a little bit in America, and we have this shape. We're looking for the shape? We're looking for the food that has a specific shape. <laughs> Can you believe these guys? I don't think we know. I don't know I, if I, know that. I, I don't think we know, but I will offer you that the word cookie is derived from the uh, Dutch word for cake. It's like kuja or something like that. All right. Um, <laughs> the the trivia or the pronunciation? No, 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 no. Look it up. <laughs> so we do not know. Okay. So from oily coke, you get to oily cake. Uh-huh. Do some, you? In some, yeah. Okay. That's, that's language. I didn't do it. I, <laughs> but an oily cake might be how you describe dough that you fried in oil, and then. You poke a hole in it a and you donut? get a donut. <laughs> Give it up Shut for donuts. Up. And so, wow. So Who knew this in this room? <laughs> <laughs> okay. yeah. Oh, he's a weirdo, though. That's now, okay. what's cool is <laughs> okay. the Smithsonian Magazine wrote an article about how Americans put the hole in the donut for no particularly good reason. And they described what Gregory did, this guy, Hanson Gregory, and they said, it was the first donut hole ever seen by mortal eyes. <laughs> Which is Meanwhile, in heaven, God <laughs> just looks over a sea of donuts. <laughs> He's like, took you long enough. <laughs> All right, question number six. I love this. What king of fruits is known for its strong odor and its name derived from the melee word for thorns? Malay, Say that again. I'm sorry. Yeah. So, what king of fruits is known for its strong odor and his name durian. is derived from the Malay word yeah. for thorns? Durian. That is durian. Woo! Ah, nice. Yes. So, durian, Spiky. seen here, has a lot of spikes on the outside. The first European descriptions came from Alfred Rus Russell Wallace, oh. also known as not Darwin. <laughs> uh, so, Blah. he described the taste as a rich custard Highly flavored with almonds. So oh, that's nice. Flavor. Yeah. He lied. Other descriptions. <laughs> other descriptions include turpentine, gasoline, and raw sewage. So, <laughs> it's an acquired taste. I think flesh? rotten flesh. <laughs> also, <laughs> yes, you're right. Yeah, I yeah, think yeah. there's also just fun thing about uh, not Darwin moving to Darwin. He mm -hmm. described. I think it was the taste of Galapagos turtle as quote uh, indescribable. <laughs> <laughs> That mystique definitely didn't help them <laughs> <laughs> in the long run. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, for, for a durian, by the way, there are 30 species. Only nine are edible, and there's really only one that's internationally shipped. So there's hmm. a... Hmm. <laughs> Zero <laughs> edible. <laughs> <laughs> How 
How There's dare you, sir? <laughs> whole world of durian out there to explore. You have to hold. You have to pinch your nose to eat it, <laughs> <laughs> like, and then yeah. never let go. <laughs> <laughs> never let <All> go. Right. <laughs> 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 All right. Question number seven. Um, what elastic paste made out of grated powdered almonds and sugar has dozens of name origins, but one of them might be Saint Marcus? Marzipan. Marzipan. Yeah. That's it. Yes, we can, marzipan. Mm-hmm. So uh, this is marzipan. Um, it has a bunch of different European names. It literally had the, the etymology section on Wikipedia is so long. It's like, oh, it could be from like Arabic. How or long from is Burmese it? Or like, <laughs> yeah. Okay. I had to try. <laughs> but yeah, so there's, there's no clear origin. There's no one origin. It's really close to a lot of words in a lot of languages that sort of describe marzipan. So mm-hmm. yeah, we don't need to read that. But that, it, was, it was a big, like, Minutes on Wikipedia, guys. <laughs> <laughs> this is hard work that we do here. <laughs> All right. And question number eight for our panelists, the final question of this quiz. What version of poutine was invented in New Jersey in the 1970s what? and gained popularities in diners in the 1990s? Disco fries? Oh. Disco f- Yes! Do it. Yes! Oh. Disco fries! Oh. It is disco oh. fries! <laughs> Give it up! Give it up. Oh. <laughs> All right. I've never seen this before. So this is disco fries. There's gravy, there's cheese, there's fries. Yeah, it's Excellent. poutine, right? It's poutine. It is everything you need to fight that hangover that you're going to have the oh next yeah. day. Hell yeah. So given the name for uh, dancers leaving the discotheque at late hours, ordering oh. it at diners. The discotheque? Discotheques. Discotheque. Discotheque. Um, <laughs> I believe. One of those. In the original <laughs> 70s. Um, so in, in 2016, interestingly, a man named Andrew from Holmdale called into local 101.5 New Jersey to say that he had invented disco fries. And the backlash was swift. <laughs> <laughs> New Jersey did not let him take credit for this. And he said, like, oh, yeah, I, like, went to Canada, and then I went dancing, and then I was like, can you do this to my fries? And they were like, <laughs> look at this disco, and they call it disco fries. And everyone was like, that can't be true. But, <laughs> but the thing is, we don't know where the name actually came from. We can't trace back the first tray of disco fries in New Jersey. So, <laughs> so Somebody's inevitably, inevitably going to have to due to a pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> this <Thank you>. <laughs> New Jersey. <laughs> New Jersey. <laughs> but <laughs> you got that. Do it to the fan. Oh, yeah. But to Andrew and Homedale, I believe you. I do. I hope you're watching. All right. That, that was him. <laughs> Avenged. All right. So, nice job, panel. You got, I would say, six of those correct. Yeah. I, I, w- I would gladly say six. Yeah. <laughs> now, you yes. also knew, uh, I should point out, you also knew that the, ni- the author of the book, The Remembrance of Things Past, yeah. was uh, Marcel. It was whoever wrote Ratatouille. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Brad Bird, I think. Yeah. Uh, but Marcel Proust. Proust. Yeah. Proust. Proust. One of those. And um, the other question I asked was about what nation gave us banana ketchup. Oh. And it was... The Philippines. So, assuming our panel knew both of those, you would have gotten eight correct. Outstanding. And you would not have won trivia tonight. Because I am pleased to inform you, not one, not two, not three, but four teams got nine out of ten questions correct. Now, what that means is that we are going to have to do some sort of food-based competition in order to determine a winner. Oh, boy. And so what we're going to do is a Beer Olympics beer pong tournament because beer is food, and we just really want to do this. So what we're going to need is a member from each of the following four teams to come up here, and we're going to do this semifinals finals version. So um, can I have a member of... Yeasty Buds, <laughs> Eggplant, Very quickly. Noah's Groupies, and Clever Team Name. Show me one each. Okay. So. Uh, we're the boss. Oh, my um, gosh. Yeah, so I remember you. <laughs> All right, Darcy, what team are you with? Okay, Darcy from Eggplant. Chrissy? I'm the Noah 
Yes. Sorry? Noah's groupies. Marissa from Easty Buds. And Amanda from Clever Team Name. So what we're going to do is we've created a bracket. Now the way it works is you have two cups here. Each time, two teams are going to play against each other. Semifinals are single elimination. Finals are best out of three. Now what you have to do, I'm going to ask you a trivia question. I think about food based on what I may have written down in red pen <laughs> during the show. So, um, so what we're going to do is if you get it on the first one, you have to bounce the ping pong ball into the cup first in order to answer. So our first matchup is going to be Yeasty Buds and Noah's Groupies. So Marissa, Krishy. Okay. Oh, we're going to have two. Yes, so the rules here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you a question. As That's soon as you idea. think you know the answer, you have to bounce it once into your cup. I'm going to try to goaltend here because I've, I've played these games before. And if you miss, I'll give it back to you. But you have to get it in the cup before you can answer. Once a ball lands in a glass, no more bouncing will be permitted. Okay? Oh the successful bouncer will get the chance to answer. This is impossible. If correct, the point goes to you. If incorrect, bouncing may resume until a correct answer is earned. Rob, I really think we should move those closer. <laughs> yeah, we'll make it a little bit closer. Yeah, yeah. Okay. okay. And, and it, is, it is not first team to two. It is a single elimination. We <laughs> <laughs> got the upgrade. And now we'll get that satisfying ping pong ball on glass sound. Okay. <laughs> We're at ball duty. We're at ball duty. Just like in tennis. We got it. Okay. Got it. <laughs> so... The first question, you're familiar with portmanteau, the combination of two names into one thing. So like, um, oh, when I need one the most, what's a portmanteau? <laughs> so it's, it's when two words come together. Nobody so say anything. Oh, well, it's two words that are put <laughs> into one. So what are the two words that are the origin of spam? Oh! oh. Oh. Oh, oh, no, oh, no. <laughs> oh, please be careful. There's more balls here, by the <laughs> way. Okay. okay. Oh, I see mine. Okay. Oh. Oh. oh, my God. Okay. Uh, this is so tense. Oh. <laughs> oh, so close. Oh. 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 <laughs> what is it? I don't know. Marissa, do you know? Go, go to your team. Go team. Oh. Spanish ham is incorrect. Oh. Marissa? Oh. Marissa, do you have a guess? Spiced ham is correct. Oh. That's it. Yeasty buds, you will remain in. Krishy, thank you for playing. Okay, Marissa, step to the side. Our next two contestants, Darcy and, sorry, Darcy and Amanda will should, now play. Should, honestly, should we move them a little closer? Let's do a little closer, yeah. Okay. Do you feel the excitement? <laughs> yeah. You don't get this from most podcasts. <laughs> okay. It's a very visual podcast. <laughs> okay. Your question, and bounce as soon as you think you know the answer. Um, what food rebranded because of complaints from PETA to remove bars from their packaging? There is a food product that used to have bars, like prison bars, on their product. They removed it because of complaints from PETA who cares a lot about living things and not plants. So oh, what is yes. a food that might have like cages on the package? Yeah, just, just like think like I a, would just no. go ahead and start just while like you're that. thinking about it. Just yeah. start, just keep going. <laughs> <laughs> what would be in cages but then like would this? be a food? Just don't, don't shout it out, but does people know this? Yeah, people yeah. know this. Sounds like people may. Just like shoot it, just like we shoot it. We yeah. were so excited okay. talking it? about yeah. this at home. <laughs> just put it in the top. <laughs> Darcy, confer with your team. It's animal crackers. Yes. That's it. All right. Thank you, Amanda. Excellent job. That was such a good fight. Darcy, Marissa, you are in the final. Okay. This is so tense. Such tension. Let's do it, team. What two fruits are allegedly in Sprite? Do people know this one? <laughs> no team, no team. Oh, okay. Oh, just kidding. Team, team, team. <laughs> team's fine, team's fine. Pulling the rug out. You can't yes. convert. Yes. 
<laughs> Only the team. <laughs> lemon and lime? Lemon and lime. Congratulations, Darcy. You have won, Marissa. Excellent job. Team Eggplant has won the <laughs> trivia for the night. Woo! And Emma, tell them what they've won. <laughs> fax machine t-shirts that you'll receive after the show, but also a curated bespoke fruit basket of foods mentioned during the show, including pasta, madelines, banana ketchup, jelly beans, and dragon fruit. All right. So thank you kindly, everyone. Um, and if you like banana ketchup, you'll love <laughs> banana ketchup. <laughs> Kyle's Comedy Show at Cabasera, so check it out Sundays at check 6. Check it out. It's free. Cabasera. Just hang out, and we do give out food, so oh. come through. Do you feel that shape? <laughs> All right. But thank you for coming to Fax Machine. If you want to check out more content, come find us on Instagram and Twitter at Fax Machine Pod and on Facebook at Fax Machine Podcast. Um, and a huge thank you to Caveat for hosting us and for getting you all to drink on a Wednesday night. Thank you, <laughs> Caveat. <laughs> and finally... One last time, goodbye to our sensational guest, Kyle Marion. Woo!